So guys, have you heard about this thing called clickbait? All right, so I've got <laughs> a little bit, a little you. bit. Oh, you've been on the internet. Okay. So, headline that not new. <laughs> What's new is that now you have to actually click on the headline as opposed to buying the newspaper. I was searching around all this week for a good mm-hmm. article that we could maybe talk about. I said, no, this title is way better to talk about. This is from SB Nation from the Michigan, the University of Michigan uh, affiliated blog. Quote, the tables have officially turned in the Michigan-Ohio State rivalry. So I'm going to ask you guys a question. Does clickbait immediately stand out to you? Okay, okay. Not anymore. And Josiah, what do you think? Not, Not as much anymore. as it used to. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It, it blends in a lot for me. Yeah, I, I noticed it, but this... Not it only noticed the most extreme so examples now. Like it, because it just doesn't register. Is that a skill that we need to either develop or redevelop? Or is that something that we cannot teach or learn to know when we're looking at clickbait? I mean, as a guy who teaches okay. writing, we can absolutely learn how to, to find that stuff. But yeah, I mean, we may have to, like, it was innate for a while because it was so obviously different. But yeah, it's something you, you may, we might have to, like, reintegrate into our, our like, into our general approach to reading media. Because, yeah, it's, I, it's it, definitely listen, blending into I, the background. I picked it up immediately. I read through the article and... I might not agree with the premise of the, of the title or the article itself. That's for the Michigan Wolverines and the Ohio State Buckeyes to solve on the football field in 2023. But I, there's a note here in the in the notes. I want whoever wrote it to jump in and explain this because there may be some chickens that are being counted here. And I, I, I want whoever to put this note in to talk about it. Yeah, so... So the premise of the article, of course, was that uh, some really high-profile Ohio uh, recruits committed to Michigan. However, so if you take the top 10 recruits from the state of Ohio, two each of those top 10 have recruited to Ohio State and Michigan. One has recruited who is committed to LSU, and the other five are currently undecided. So, you know. That's... I know you're excited. There were a couple of them were, were high profile. It's really exciting. That's Chill not, out. No. <laughs> That's Chill. not a big inversion of like, oh my gosh, you know, nine out of ten I mean, are going look, to Michigan. Matt, we all agree. You know, yeah. When Michigan was at their peak, you know, uh, Woodson, Heisman winner from Ohio, Desmond Howard, Heisman winner from mm. Ohio. Mm. You know, they get they've had a lot of great players mm-hmm. come in and out of that program that are Ohio natives and, and did not go to the big state university of Ohio and instead went to the big state university of Michigan. And I I get it. Listen, they can fight it out on the field and I'm excited to watch them do it. But I I don't know that is a march we are trying to generate content title if ever I've seen one. <laughs> And there is a last note. What is this about? Shooting hoops? Who wants to explain what's going on here with shooting hoops? Oh, yeah. So there is a bit of drama 
earlier this week of the possibility that Jonathan, the uh, Yukon Husky, the, the actual dog, would be unable to make the final four. Um, and through some logistical hurdles, um, particularly whether or not they could actually get him on a flight, whether they could afford the flights for him and the handlers, and through some help from the university and through Delta Airlines, they're able to figure that out. Uh, so there are some lovely pictures actually on the official uh, socials for Jonathan of a very happy, I would say puppy, but a husky is a giant dog. Um, so a, a very happy dog sitting in on a uh, if ever there was Delta flight bar, on his way to Houston. This was it right here. to our fourth episode of Feed Your Mascot. My name is Blue, and I'm joined by two of my favorite people to talk to. Jeff, coming from Windy, uh, Indiana, this week. Oh, yeah. I I think we were, up until about an hour ago, under a tornado watch. Uh, Also, update, Arsenal up 4-1 on Leeds. Is that a lot? I'm not sure how how, uh, the kicky ball works. So, is that a lot? Uh, It's a lot. It's a lot for... uh, And this is a soccer. this is a, a walking uh, a place where they store weaponry, or is this an actual soccer team? Uh, it is a soccer team. Oh, okay. I thought it was they they got the building with all the guns in it, and that was old. Uh, it was originally founded uh, by weapon or by fa- uh, workers <laughs> at a weapons factory. Uh, this is the type of history you can only get on a podcast like Feed Your Mascot. And and with us wearing a, uh, I believe this is a stickball <laughs> team that you're supporting this afternoon, Josiah. Why, why don't you tell the listeners because this is a this is a yes. audio uh, medium. Yes, what, it is. What team are you repping today, and how are you doing? I, I'm doing good. My team is the Minnesota Twins, unfortunately. Um, so, you know, that just basically means I, I, I pay attention to them a little bit. And then, you know, if they make the playoffs, I say, well, it was a good year. We're going to lose in the first whatever, because we always do. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's you know, I, I, I was blessed to be born into the Minnesota fan bases. And, uh, yeah, it's, hey, it's look, going I, great. I, I, it's going one, just I, fine. I, the thing I know about them as a stick uh, stickball team is they have won a World Series in my lifetime. And so I, in my mind, it's like, yeah, they've won that a World Series. That is true. That is true. They um, have. And they're named after the fact that they have two fun cities that they represent. So, that's right. Those Twin Cities up there. That's in, right. In, in Minneapolis, the St. Paul, baby. Uh, Midwest. So, it, it's very nice. Um, I am glad to have you it guys. Is, it we is have, pretty. I think, our best show yet. And so, we're actually going to talk about three unique topics. An appetizer, an entree, and a dinner. Uh, a dessert. And then, we're going to kind of go in and have a real conversation as it pertains to maybe some of the things that are happening around the sport. 
So our appetizer, I'm going to be handling that. We're going to talk about what makes the culture of a fan base, specifically not coach speak for culture, where the coach comes in and says, we're going to have to change culture around here, which means no more no more tailgating outside the stadium. Um, we're going to talk about an entree, which it's paternalism and coaches as surrogate father figures, which I'm really excited to talk about this. I, I, I know a lot of your research has to do with these types of things, Josiah, and Josiah will be leading that discussion. And then finally, I we have a mm-hmm. dense dessert today. I'm talking, this is this is the kind of cake that your mother would make and you get it and you cut into it and it's like, this is the stuff that makes, this, this is what makes you go to sleep when you're done. So I really love this. This is going to be sports foods around the world. Mm-hmm. And again, this all ties back into culture. This all ties back into feeding your mascot. And Jeff is going to be leading us on that. And I'm kind of excited to see where we go because coming from three different fan bases and, th- and even outside of the college realm, three fan bases of wildly different sports teams, we got a lot of food to talk about. So I, I kind of want to kick us off here. And I want to start us off with our oh, first yeah. question. What makes a fan base's culture? So, and, and I want to be very specific. So I, I'm going to give a definition and feel free to chime in, feel free to correct, feel free to, to give your two cents. When I say culture of a fan base, I'm specifically not talking about what's going on in the football stadium or in the football building. So that's a different culture that the coaches always say, I have to fix when I get here. They had a losing culture. That last guy got fired because of X, Y, Z. Forget that for a second. We're, we're not doing coach speak. And hopefully on our program, we'll, we'll rarely or never do coach speak. But I do want to talk about, say, how does a team's mentality to or toward their fans their fan how do they view their team and broadly speaking themselves like your ag school versus your your school with the professional uh, uh programs your your small underfunded hbcu versus your long time private hbcu and all of all of those your engineering schools versus your art schools um I want to talk about that type of culture and then even granular what makes individual cultures appear, exist, change, and develop. And so I, I want to start by getting some definitions. Maybe somebody has some different ideas, but Jeff and Josiah, between you two, what do you all think of when I say, when someone says the culture of a fan base? I mean, I think of something that is a bit more grassroots. Now, not... I think we often, I, I think we can assume it's entirely grassroots and it usually isn't, but um, but that there's a bit more of the organic fan input stuff that has just sort of sprung up. Maybe one person started it, but it quickly became a group thing. Um, so that's kind of where I end up going, where it may not be, sanc- it may be unsanctioned. It may even be something that the institution does not like, but the fan yeah, base, I, you know, I kind of come to the it. same place where it's what are the expressions of the fan base's sense of self and to some degree as well sense of place in the same way that like when you talk wine you often talk terroir which is the sense of place which sometimes comes from things like climate and soil types but can also come from what are the long-standing traditions of how you make wine and the specific processes that go into it that are, even if you might have a similar uh, group of people or a similar school in a different place, how does that make you, if you're viewing this kind of blindly, could you figure out, okay, this is, you know, Purdue or Oklahoma State 
or this is Georgia Tech. Um, obviously, all naming schools that are engineering schools or ag schools here, but that's they're all kind of like being, well, it's the same grape, but in different places. So I really want to touch on what you said, Josiah, because I think you made a great point about something done by an individual that then either gets disseminated through the fan base or picked up by the university. So we talk a lot about fight songs. Fight songs are great. We all love them. A lot of the fight songs were written by a single individual after a particularly great or disastrous game. And then that gets picked up by the fan base. It's like, we really like this. And so we foist this upon the institution. I think a pretty good example of that is, say, Ohio State. So Ohio State's fight song was written after, I think, like a 80 to nothing drubbing by Michigan. And now it's they play it after every touchdown. And this was a century ago. And so that's a great, to your point, that was one man who wrote a song to express how he felt about his team losing a football game. And now it's, they everybody knows the lyrics. And, mm-hmm. and to your point, Jeff, I, I really do like that idea that, like, we're all grapes here. We all make grape, we all make wine or juice or or jam or jelly and just depends on where you fall on that spectrum of of consuming your grapes. And so I I really do think both of those are valid and it kind of leads me into my next question. So, you know, we talk about how they then become independent of each other because in a vacuum, these are all universities and ideally they should all be providing an education, which leads to a degree of some kind, whether it's a uh, associates, bachelors or, or, or graduate, or even just certifications, what have you. And so the question I want to kind of pose here is given an example of two schools, let's say, and we all have in-state rivals. So we can kind of push on that and talk about the in-state rivals we have and go over it. But I, I kind of want to lead off here with Josiah because you've put a very, like this is a, this is a very, this one has a wide delta between the two of them. And I think this is a good place to start to kind of say, this is at the extreme, what two schools who have cultures that are maybe a little bit different from one another and how that may have developed. Yeah, yeah, like, uh, and we're talking about the great universities from the state of Mississippi. You, Mississippi, and Mississippi State are more commonly called Ole Miss, though I have a mixed bag feeling about that name for reasons we can get into at a different point. But, but yeah, they, they are very different cultures. And it's weird because Mississippi is, there is a lot of... Uh, uniformity in 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 terms of uh environment in mississippi uh because the whole state is poor now don't i'm not saying it's totally uniform there's some extremely poor places and there's still a lot of very deeply damaged communities from generations of racism but in the sense that there there is not really a there, there is not the same sort of disparity of urban and rural. Even the city spaces in Mississippi are fairly, fairly rural in a lot of ways. Like the Jackson metro area is, it's not a traditional downtown with like skyscrapers everywhere. So it, it, there's a lot of similar experiences between people at these schools, but they are vastly different in their, in their ethos, in the way people talk about them. Mississippi is lawyers and doctors and Mississippi state is farmers and engineers. And that is, I mean, every, all the jokes, all the commentary centers around that, that dichotomy. And it's wild. Um, and, 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 but they're, they're not, they shouldn't be that different. Um, because the, we all have a shared experience of being in a, in, in a poor state. We're all, you know, from these two different towns, they're both 
predominantly white institutions. So we're not talking HBCU versus white institution, you know, funded in similar ways. Um, and, and, and so you'd think these would be very similar universities, but they are, their cultures have, they've gotten, I think, a little closer together in some ways in the last decade. But yeah, there's still a large difference between what they talk about themselves, how they handle things. I mean, Ole Miss is still the party school. Mississippi State, for for its striving to be a fun environment, is still not that. Yeah, I appreciate that, you, you know? kind of pulling, pulling that string there and, and kind of pointing out, you know, one of the dichotomies I talk about a lot is this is the school that makes the lawyers, this is the school that makes the engineers, and they routinely butt heads about who gets funding when those graduates then matriculate into the space where they make political mm-hmm. decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff, I, I kind of want to ask you this because Mississippi has some private schools that are that are in the state, but their private schools aren't really represented on the state level for for uh, athletics. Mostly, it's Mississippi, Miss, University of Mississippi, Mississippi State, and that, and if there are other schools that are maybe a D one, D two, Josiah can and elucidate on that. But Jeff, I want to ask you because Indiana does have a number of private schools. In addition to, let's say, your your, MB, your University of Indiana at Bloomington and your Purdue University. So you talk about those two schools and their differences. But if you don't mind, uh, let's talk about maybe, say, Butler as a private school in Indianapolis that um, I have a little bit of history with. One of my very good friends went there and is an alumni. And then, of course, the kind of one that's looming over all of these <laughs> from a football sense. Um, the Golden Domers and uh, the uh, University of Notre Dame in uh, South Bend. Yeah, Notre Dame is very different than a number of the other schools in Indiana. One, it is the one that has had football success. And some of that is Notre Dame is a school that is in Indiana. However, it is the center of a cultural universe that is very big and very broad. As much as anything, it is a Chicago school in terms of student recruitment and athlete recruitment and broader fan base. Um, There's a huge following throughout the Midwest um, in places like Cincinnati and St. Louis, and then in the Northeast as well. And obviously a lot of that comes from the fact that it is historically the most successful Catholic school in football did a very big job in starting the 20s to leverage its success as well as leverage national media to become a cultural institution, particularly um, among Catholics, but kind of in general in a broader way for one, because that really helps with success as an institution, both as an academic institution and a um, religious institution, as an institution that almost shut down during World War II if it was not for an involvement of the Navy. Um, in you, you mean a small uh, a military academy in Annapolis, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, the reason why Notre Dame still plays <laughs> Navy annually is as a thank you for basically putting an officer training program at Notre Dame, which meant they could have students on campus, which if you don't know about Notre Dame, it is a 10,000 undergrad institution. It is a very small school. Um, and the idea that it is a football powerhouse is because they were able to leverage success and media and cultural networking into money to keep, to, to have that, um, success. So it is an interesting place 
in its relationship with everywhere else, one, because of historic anti-Catholic bias in the state of Indiana, um, where there are stories from the 20s and 30s of um, members of the Klan fighting students at the railway station in South Bend um, when the Klan wanted to do a rally. Um, And the Klan, for those that are unaware, was incredibly politically powerful in Indiana in the 20s. There are counties where it was close to half the adult men um, in the county were members of the Klan and they were heavily influential in the state house um, at that time as well, um, which kind of can trickle through all sorts of policies kind of where it's hilariously still really easy to see is um, alcohol policy in Indiana was historically very restrictive um, where it's only been since I've kind of lived here um, as an adult. So within the last six or seven years that they've allowed alcohol sales on Sunday at all. And that was a massive negotiation um, between a lot of interest in the state. Um, So it is a very different institution because of how it's pulling from there. Although more recently, there are a lot of people that were kind of just fans because of the success and not necessarily because of the religious connections. Um, Some of that has actually waned more than anything because the cults got good. And a lot of people that would have their number one fan fandom in the state been the most successful football school in the state uh, shifted into becoming fans of this of a very successful NFL team that had an incredible 15-year run of probably two of the best quarterbacks. Um, and Jim Hart playing at the times. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that story of how Indianapolis got a football team, a professional football team, is... Wild, and maybe we'll go into that at a later date when we talk about uh, teams, fan bases that just uproot and go somewhere else. Um, it, Jeff, I, I know you explained Notre Dame a little bit, and I appreciate that. But um, one of the things I've always been curious about is how maybe people within the borders of Indiana view, say, the Hoosiers, the University of Indiana, Bloomington, and Purdue, because I think of it as a big. A, a pretty testy rivalry. I think of it of, 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 as contentious. Uh, but I, how does the state tend to perceive the two of them not having a lot of football success, Indiana having wild basketball success, but that's starting to, we're starting to get further away from that than be closer to it than before. Um, thank you, University of Miami on all fronts. Um, <laughs> uh, Florida, Miami, Florida. Uh, how, how is that viewed in state when you, when you, when you, if you go into a high school and, and you're there and a, and a Hoosier alumni is there and you're both doing, let's say you're both recruiting, how does a typical, maybe if not a football player, specifically not a basketball player or maybe not a football player, how, how are those two schools viewed as, as culture-wise within the state? So there, there are some interesting things in that both schools, their fan base that aren't necessarily students often don't look that different other than region. So if you're unfamiliar with kind of geography of Indiana, Indiana, Indianapolis is in the center, about an hour south, um, maybe a little bit southwest of there is Bloomington. And then an hour northwest of Indianapolis is West Lafayette, which is where Purdue is. So the two schools are about a two hour drive. The center of the state um, both politically and economically is right in between. Um, and then you have 
some very different places that border each side. So Chicago is obviously off to the north and has an influence. And Ohio and Kentucky are just south. Um, and the southern Indiana area is often referred to as Kentuckiana because um, there are a lot of cultural connections there. So while kind of the broader fan base is often kind of coming from both people that are rural and live in agricultural areas, maybe are involved in farming um, or kind of a lot of historical manufacturing that is there. There are some pretty decent regional splits. Um, the one thing is because Indiana had a little bit higher highs. Now, both, both have been very successful basketball-wise. Indiana, a little bit higher highs. They have tended to have the bigger fan base that kind of came in off, off the sidewalk just because of that little bit of success. It also was the name of the state on it, which if you live in Indiana, it's there. So it probably has a larger fan base and very often in local media shines a little bit brighter, which for a lot of Purdue people has, does provide a little bit of a ship on the shoulder because you feel like you are have to fight and scrap for a little bit more um, and that you're kind of continuously disrespected. Um, and you also had historically, there were people that were IU basketball fans and Notre Dame football fans that were unaffiliated with that school and, and typically were referred to as reversible jacket fans. Um, because the idea is in the fall, it's the right weather for like a <laughs> light jacket that could be uh, reversed. And in, in the early falls when there's both football and basketball, <laughs> so you can just flip it depending on uh, who's playing. Um, but what also gets interesting... <laughs> Look, that sounds like a great coat. That sounds like a very good coat. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna knock yeah. good fashion um, design. What gets uh, interesting is when you combine that hilarious. with who the student bases, the alumni bases are, because yeah, it is very much Purdue is the ag and engineering school, and it is probably more widely known for being an engineering school. Um, and IU is lawyers, doctors, businessmen, arts and sciences. Um, so. You do get this interesting dichotomy of who then is alumni bases, and you kind of can see that in Indianapolis where it's equidistant, and there are a lot of industries that hire a lot of those different skill sets from both, that you have a lot of those interactions um, back and forth, and while there might be some casual on the street IU preference, you still have a lot of both, and you still have a lot of interactions. So there's there's great awareness and presence for um both where it can get funky is in a workplace. So I, prior to my current job, it's a very kind of office working with computers job. Um, I was in a manufacturing plant doing process launches. So a lot of the engineer level people were Purdue, actually a decent amount were University of Cincinnati because it was more towards the Southern end of the state. Um, Alumni. There were some Rose Holman alumni, which Rose Holman is a very small engineering school. They, I think, have D three sports, um, but a relatively well known engineering school in Terre Haute. Um, and there's a academic rivalry between Purdue and Rose Holman that only exists as like an academic and rhetorical thing, but doesn't exist in sports and is very contained to Indiana. Um, so, a couple of my managers while I was there were Rose Holman alums, um, but. 
you have those schools represented in kind of engineering. If you go up into finance, you might get some IU and Notre Dame. And then a lot of people on the plant floor were IU fans. So there's this very weird thing of someone that their connection is through sports and nowhere else trying to trash talk um, about the results of a basketball game to someone who went there. And it's a very (laughs) – that also builds a very weird thing of Purdue fans feel – have that feeling that, oh, IU only has the fan base it does because of success and there are people that are only IU fans because of that success rather than – having that connection through actually being on campus. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for kind of explaining that a little bit. Because again, you know, my, my brother is a mechanical engineer. He talks about the, the shop floor all the time. And it's like, yeah, it's great. I, I'm a scientist. I'm not building anything. Um, so I, I, just to kind of wrap us up on this, I, I'll, give, I'll give a small uh, sampling of what it's like at the HBCU level in the Commonwealth of Virginia. So Commonwealth of Virginia has five HBCUs. They used to have six. Um, but one, unfortunately, recently closed. It'll be uh, 10 years this year. Uh, St. Paul's College closed in 2013. Um, so Norfolk State is the largest by population. So the largest student body of all the HBCUs in Virginia. And we have two principal rivals in state. Uh, Virginia State, who is we refer to as big state. Um, we refer to they refer to us as little state um, and we play them every year on Labor Day Classic, which is coming back this year. And I'm going to try to go. I'm very excited about it. Um, but that's really a D1 and D2 rivalry. So Norfolk State is at the FCS level. Virginia State is at the D2 level. So we, we don't play them in any of the sports. We only play them in basketball or excuse me, in football. We don't play them in basketball. We don't play them in baseball. We don't play them. We only see them once a year. And uh, and just for the record. They have the, the 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 series, so they have the higher win total in the series. So uh, we, we we have a lot of respect for them, and they are the Commonwealth's uh, uh, Moral Act land grant school for have been for about a century now. On the other side of that, though, and and again, this is personal. Norfolk State's really their biggest rival is is Hampton University. Um, to that end, you'll sometimes hear me refer to them as the Institute. Um, they are one of the older HBCUs, uh, period, end of statement. Um, they are absolutely one of the older in the Commonwealth of Virginia. They are not the oldest in the Commonwealth of Virginia. That belongs to Virginia Union University, uh, which is a seminary in Richmond. They've been around since uh, the uh, since abolition. So they've been around since 1865. And then a few years later, a few people started a school in Hampton, Virginia. Um, and so one of the things that really kind of makes a difference there is you've got your private school versus your public school. Um, you have a lot of uh, one side of a, the way Virginia is set up geographically. There's a south side and north side, and they're separated by Chesapeake Bay. Norfolk is on the south side. Hampton is on the north side. They're separated by a few different bridges. And so you have that particular rivalry. You have old, you know, established uh, over a century university in Hampton. And then Norfolk State was founded during the Great Depression. And really kind of had to scrap and fight to go from being a single room in the local YMCA to a sprawling campus that delivers H- that delivers uh, PhDs. And so one of the things I try to illustrate in that rivalry is just kind of take a look at how they've developed their campuses. And so Hampton's campus is a historic campus to the point where it is still steam powered. And that's that's not a pejorative. That's all the buildings are heated by steam, by underground 
uh, uh, pipes that they have a giant boiler underground and then they pump steam all over the campus and that heats all the buildings. And it's a wildly amazing system. Like you can actually see steam coming out of the ground uh, because they have outlets for it. And it's, it's a beautiful system. And then, of course, Hampton being right on the water, like I mean, right on the Chesapeake Bay, they also have access to a dock. And so they have different boats that come in and out. It's, it's very much so what you would imagine the this is where we look at the, the pinnacle of what an institution could be. For a lot of the uh, upperly mobile, the bourgeoisie of the of of the African American uh, uh, population, particularly in Virginia, because um, they look at around, and they go, "Well, UVA is this amazing institution," and they go, "Where's ours?" And so they built Hampton, and and it's a lovely place. It's a beautiful campus. I recommend it. go to Hampton University. It's a lovely campus. Norfolk look State's at the Google of- Street View of it, and it is yeah, yeah it it is a pretty looking place. It's a beautiful place. Um, on the flip side of that, though, on the other side of Battle of the Bay, you have Norfolk State, which, like I said, everybody started out single room in a YMCA. They shut the YMCA down after that because they did not want this place to exist. It then uh, was bouncing around places. And then eventually um, several HBCUs in Virginia, not including Hampton, they put together enough money to purchase an old golf course that was no longer being used. And that golf course became campus. And so the golf course, um, one of the things that they did, it was right around the time I was an undergrad. Uh, I was a freshman when they closed it, but they used to have this little thing called the White House. And it was a reminder that this was the only place that African-Americans could be on this on these grounds prior to this being Norfolk State. And so they kept that house. And now there's a plaque in place because the house was in such despair. It was removed. But there's a plaque reminding everyone this is what we came from. You know, this is the great progress we have made from not being allowed here to now this place issues great degrees of, of all kinds. And so Norfolk State is a highly modern campus. All of the buildings that are on Norfolk State have been updated multiple times because they're always changing to kind of meet the current need. And one of the things you can see, and it's really the, the modern symbol of the academic side of the university is it's called the beacon. And it's this giant tower um, from the perspective of, of a person walking campus. And it says NSU on it. And inside the tower is a bell, it's a cast iron bell that was created for the first black church in Norfolk, Virginia, which was founded sometime before the Civil War. We're talking 1810 is the first African-American church in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, North Virginia is one of the places that the African-American experience has been since the 1600s. So, you know, when they talk about the 1619 project, those, those people, those Africans that were brought over was in Norfolk, Virginia, what became Norfolk, Virginia. And so... This bell is a representation that when the university was at first created, it was gifted the bell by the church. And so we have held on to the bell as this is the through line for all of the African-Americans that have been coming in and out of this part of Virginia. And so our idea of history is to represent history as something we look back on, something we improve on by being a part of history. And then Hampton's view of history is we are history. We created the history. And so that's the dichotomy you see, particularly like if you just look at our football stadiums. Uh, Dick Price Stadium is a huge football field. I mean, it's got everything you could ever want in a football stadium. And Hampton's football stadium is a little smaller, a little more intimate. They're trying to expand it now that they're in the CAA, but you can see the difference between the two teams and uh, the two universities. And so that that 
again, even amongst our, we have our, we have our divisions, we have our conversations, you know, we have our arguments about what programs are offered. And, and we always like to portray Hampton is your name brand. Everyone knows Hampton. Norfolk state is a bit of a smaller, it's, it's, it's your, it's your IPA. Norfolk state is where your homebrew is. That's where your, your local, your, your, your local is. And so that's really the biggest difference. But to that point, I really want to kind of go to the next section we have to our entree because mm-hmm. I really like what this is. I really want to get a good discussion out of this. So Josiah, you, you brought this up to us and brought it to us on a meeting and then put it in the doc for paternalism and coaches yep. as surrogate fathers. And you have a lot of experience with a particular coach. And so oh, yeah. I, would you like to tell us kind of the story of, of, of your coach at one of your schools and maybe kind of give a little bit of background and kind of open us up here? Yeah, yeah. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, when talking about like anything, you want to see it from two different angles. You want to see the macro level culture, historical evolution of an idea, of a concept. You also want to see sort of the specific moments where that ruptures through and creates things that happen. Um, and, and, you know, you, can, you don't want to overly assign agency to a cultural idea but but it does come through in some places way more obviously than others so an example of 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 a coach who is really embodying this notion of paternalism you know uh you know the 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 fatherhood of a coach the idea that a coach is a surrogate father to all the people on their team um that's not an idea that necessarily has to exist uh, we we you know you see that idea it's pretty pervasive we think oh that's that's something that has to be there and it it doesn't It, it came from somewhere um a really prominent example of this that you can a lot of people that don't even follow or know about oklahoma state may have heard of is mike gundy's i'm a man i'm 40 rant which happened in 2007 uh you know and it's a it's a weird video like when you watch it he he's tan and but at the lighting of the room and with the big orange background and what he's wearing everything looks orange including him and so you know there's like it's a visually kind of comedic moment he's ranting about something if you haven't read the article he's talking about it's not super clear what's going on um he 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 says these really odd phrases and goes on about certain things that don't feel like they correlate to anything so you've got you know he he says stuff like uh this article was <laughs> was brought to be um by a mother of children and then at one point starts talking about you know how the author doesn't have a child you don't know what it might it feels like to see a kid you know knocked down if you had a kid you'd understand it i have kids you don't and you know and, and that sort of thing and and of course the infamous phrase where he's like don't come after a kid come after me i'm a man i'm 40 and it's it's a wild speech but one of the things that it had a, it had a very mixed response. It deservedly was made fun of a lot because it's kind of ridiculous. He's really just going off about this article in a way that, you know, articles are written every day. There's probably some that are critical of players. It happens. This article was not, you know, super favorable towards uh, the quarterback, Bobby Reed, who was playing at Oklahoma State at the time. Um, and so Mike Gundy is sort of sticking up for him. But he's also really asserting himself as the the coach in charge of this kid and that you need to leave the my kids alone um and and while a lot of people made fun of it it also kind of endeared people to mike gundy 
in a weird way and that they're like well you know maybe he's a little weird he's kooky he's off base he's orange um but he cares about his players and you can't fault a guy for that like that that's a good thing um but bobby reed himself didn't necessarily feel that way at least not immediately afterwards um he transferred out finished his career in football at least at the great university of texas southern um you know, really not a bad player. Just it, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it doesn't work out for lots of reasons. Um, and I'm sure we could dissect that a bit more. But this speech itself is a really interesting moment because of not just what it shows about Mike Gundy, but about the way we talk about coaches and the way we think about coaches and the way that coaches sometimes think about themselves. It's not, you know, it's not just that, that, that. I, I, I can't speak for all coaches, but I know that there are going to be true believers for these sorts of philosophies, just as there are going to be people who say things that they don't believe because it, it plays well. Um, and we see that in a lot of arenas, including you know politics and stuff. But you've got this coach who is really emphasizing his fatherhood over his players and, and how they do everything I tell them to do. And that's what makes them good kids. Um, and so that's just one moment where we see this this trend. Um And there's a lot of context to where this came from. And this is the part that I really wanted to talk about that informs these weird moments. Because if you don't see that, if you don't know any context to that, that speech is strange. Every part of it is weird. Every part of it feels weird, not just like the camera angles and stuff. It's like, I don't even know, you know, he's mad. Why is he mad? Who are these people? What's going on? And why is he saying this this in the weird way he's saying it? Um, And some of that is because of where footballs come from. So early in the 1900s, there's a lot of things going on for the sport, right? There's football is, is starting to be taken up by universities. It's becoming the sport of university life. There's a lot of sports that, that could do that, but this one becomes the one that they really latch onto. It's very popular. It also appeals to certain philosophies of the day. Um, and as they're building this, the sport is also sort of in crisis because the sport is too violent. They're paying players to play. All of this sounds a little f- too familiar. Um, and Teddy Roosevelt steps in and is like, hey, y'all, you got you to gotta chill the sport out or I'm going to make it illegal. Like this is, this is, it's, it's a pretty, now how real that threat was, eh, I don't know. But they, they come together and they form the sort of proto NCAA. It's not called that. It's not sp- it's technically that, but that's essentially what it is, and it it makes the uh, it they they're they're created purely to manage the sport, make sure that some of the purity and refineness and moral goodness of the sport comes back. What's interesting about who is instituting this is that Teddy Roosevelt himself is not a guy who's necessarily scared of violence. He embodies a philosophy of the time that a particular uh, uh, Christian philosophy, although other religious groups are practicing this concept as well, of muscular Christianity. And uh, this is a movement that sort of doesn't have a particular origin that I could find, at least not in my reading. If there is one, I'm sure uh, someone can point that out to me. But um, in you know, it wasn't like, oh yeah, these. It wasn't a. It was a concept that just ran through from pre-Civil War, um, and the notion is that physical activity 
and team sports are morally good. They're, they don't just make your body strong. They make your spirit. They make your mo- your heart. They make you morally upright. And that team sports are very good. Masculinity is also folded into this. That These are good masculine educators. They teach men how to be men. And so Teddy Roosevelt, the man who is this muscular Christianity proponent, very in favor of it, a sportsman. We know him for shooting things and going on outdoors trips for being a, a soldier. Someone tried to assassinate him. He survived that you know like he's he he positions himself as this masculine force and and as a christian masculine force and and so this whole, all gets pulled together and sort of juxtaposed and melded into a big pot and he's the one who's telling football chill like you guys gotta cut this out people are dying while playing this game that's not okay um but like i said this idea wasn't just in christian groups there were there there was muscular judaism where you know this was a group that was facing a lot of anti-semitism still does but especially in the lead up to world war or two, it was extremely rampant. And so not just Christians, but Jews are also themselves saying like, we want to show that we, you know, we want to try to offset these stereotypes. We want to fight them proactively with how we act. And so this idea gets taken up there. Um, other athletes that maybe not for religious reasons, but for how they look, their color, uh, their skin, proving themselves in sports arenas. Um, there's a really interesting side note to this that we can get into at a different time about indigenous schools and athletes, people like Jim Thorpe, and how they were trying to use athletics to show that we're human beings, which you know we, we all believe leave now but like there was a time when that wasn't something everyone thought and it's horrifying but that's what they that sport was a way they were trying to do that so it's not just christians that are saying this but it's this movement of using sports in this way to prove humanhood but also as a masculine educator and as a a moral educator and some of that's coming from the idea that there was a fear and it wasn't maybe super widespread but you know like most moral panics it had some legs uh, that that boys were being raised by their mothers because of industry taking off Guys, men, men being the, you know, in the traditional homemaker breadwinner model, men are going off and they're working at the factory to, to help support their families. And since they're gone on these long shifts, um, <laughs> people were worried. They're like, oh man, dad's working a blue collar job, but he's not spending all day with his son. So his sons are going to work, grow up and to be quote unquote effeminate and not truly manly, not masculine enough. Um, he, he's, they're being, these boys raised by women. And you know, that was, a, that was, uh, it's ridiculous. But um, I mean, especially now, now you you look at blue collar families and people would say, well, they're, they're like, you know, salt of the earth folk, you know, we're not worried about them at all. It's the families with white collar jobs that were, you know, and, and so on. We, we just make up new reasons to panic, but the, the, there was that worry that this change in society is going to make our boys less manly, less masculine. And sports became something that they said, well, that could do that. And then football in particular, well, this is a brutal physical sport. And it's something that, um, we can use though as a way to teach boys not only how to be good people but how to be men and so coaches in the mix of all that became these surrogate fathers the the idea that this was a second dad he wasn't going to replace your original dad unless you don't have one in which case you know he, he could theoretically in a certain way um but but that these guys were going to fill that gap. So if it's a boy who's only raised by a mom and and you still hear this narrative now, you know, that coach stepped up and he was the man, he was a man, you know, I needed a man in my life and coach was that man. And, you know, the idea that this is a person who will father you, will make you into a man in a way that 
somebody else couldn't. And and so there there was a lot of resistance that came out of this as well. That you know, as a sort of side note, in uh, against women's sports because of that idea. And you know, there was women's football. There were women's football teams yes. at school before the powder puffs. Before the powder puffs, yeah, there yeah, were absolutely exactly. Yeah, I exactly. want to jump in. I want to jump in and ask a quick question here, Josiah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and maybe we can jump rope Jeff in as well. So, you know, let's let's go back to talking about uh, President Roosevelt, or Theodore yeah, yeah. Roosevelt, and, and and saying, look, guys, we got to make some changes here. So, really, this is because of some 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 high profile uh, uh, deaths that were happening. Exactly. Because the sport at the time was mainly an Ivy League upper northeastern activity. Yes, mm-hmm. there were other programs. Um, I, I, I will talk about this later, but you know, North Carolina and Virginia were really the reason we even have high schools in those two states is because UVA and UNC wanted to have better football teams. But I, I, I want to touch on that for a minute of how the sport proliferated from the Northeast to the Midwest, down to the South, across the Southwest, into the West, into the Northwest, kind of simultaneously through West Coast and Pacific Northwest. But I want to talk about specifically looking at how the sport was being implemented. Mm -hmm. Flying Wedge was still active. There were no helmets. There were no face masks. There were very few rules against incentivizing safer play. So there, there, Mm -hmm. there there were rules of how to structure the game, but there were no rules on how to be safe while playing the game. How did these things maybe also lend themselves towards, say, that those ideas of honor and those ideas of manhood? So an example is uh, Alabama's football team before it was the powerhouse. It was just a small underfunded institution playing the game of football. And when they went and played Michigan, one of the first times that these two teams met on the field, the coach told them they beat your granddaddies in the Civil War. (laughs) Go give them hell on the field for it. Like, kind of, kind of walk us through if if you can, and let's kind of bring Jeff in, being the Midwesterner of the group. Yeah. Kind of walk us through like how that shift happened, and maybe some of these ideas of yeah. honor and family and team, and it's war out there. You yeah. gotta kill it. Like how did how did those things kind of uh, uh, mature and develop over the football's lifetime? Well, and and a lot of that coming out of. Um, when you look at the history of football, it began, well, the story of how it began is a little bit murky, but, you know, kind of some of it was a hazing ritual, a way to toughen people up. Um, and this idea of masculinity in Christian, muscular Christianity, and, and really a lot of conservative, very deeply conservative Christian and religious circles was war is sort of valorized in a way that's beyond what, you know, people will respect a soldier, but there's a certain valorization that goes above and beyond even that. And, 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 oh, and so needing to find combat as a way to become a man you know there aren't we don't we don't fight wars with a sword and shield anymore you know you're not going out there and doing that but but we could have a version of that in the in our quote-unquote in the trenches like you said we have this honor about us that we are going to be good men that that go and band together as a team and win this gritty sport um and part of that proliferation across the country was people seeing the success of that at the ivy leagues and we have a long tradition of stealing things from other schools you know like OU's fight song like is statues. Yeah, yeah, Harvard's fight song and Colors 
and other traditions. We steal them from more successful schools or Ivy Leagues. And so they see this over there and they're like, well, dang, that's a cool sport or that sport's really you know, popping off to get 20,000 people are going to a game. That's insane. We should do that. Um, and a lot of the early rules were basically not entirely set. So it was very much yes. schools would come up with internal house rules and then they'd say, okay, we're playing other schools. So we're going to change it up. And mm-hmm. slowly and slowly you build up this different sport. Cause the origin is pre-civil war mm-hmm. in England at boarding schools. And then it kind of spread into the U S and Canada to a degree of these different football games. And these two you know, what eventually evolved into soccer and rugby is kind of what was happening in the UK of attempts to standardize all these boarding school games in the U S it comes over. You have your workers. Princeton game is basically what if soccer more people on the field and we're not calling any fouls <laughs> and one random guy just picks the ball up and runs with it. That was, yeah, which is how, how rugby came up. Some dude just like, I'm, I'm going to break the rules and run the ball and no one's going to stop me. Um, and you had at the same time schools in Canada that were starting to play more of the the rugby style, and you had the schools that football started to spread to were then playing McGill and like we kind of like this, let's do this. Like it was very much a you start all these com- combinations house rules and you build up this these rule set organically, and then you have some standardization. So the the evolution really between 1869 and Right as Teddy Roosevelt was saying, one, yeah, right around yeah, mm-hmm. one. You need to change this up. It's very much people were trying stuff, but not necessarily thinking of consequences. They're just like, oh, this is fun. Yeah, this is fun. And things like the flying wedge that had to be outlawed. You eventually get like you can't block forward in rugby. But you could in American football at the time, which is how you have things like the flying wedge exist. Mm -hmm. And you have different solutions to the same problems where rugby, they widen the field. In American football, Harvard made a big deal of no, don't widen the field because they just built in a really expensive stadium and they didn't (laughs) want to do that, which is why we have the forward pass. Is there is the idea of, well, we need to make sure that we aren't jam packing people. How do we do this? Uh, Well, we can't widen the field because Harvard made a big stake. So, they started the forward pass, which fundamentally changed the game to be what it is now. Correct. One of the things I want to jump in here. Oh, I'm sorry, Josiah. I was going to say, and one more addendum to that whole thing with the rules evolution, a subplot to all of that leading up to the crisis in the early 1900s is that the Carlisle Indian School, coached by Pop Warner, Yo, absolutely. Was, yes. was innovating the heck out of it. But they were doing it with these undersized players who were malnourished, mistreated. Hard to catch. Yep. And, but he was willing to be tricky to win a game. And he, they would yes. go toe-to-toe with these powerhouse teams that were physically so much bigger than them. And so what did the teams do? They made the game more brutal because they did not like an indigenous school competing with them. So Harvard said, oh, okay, well, they can't compete with us if we pull them into the muck more and just beat the crap out of them so that's what we're going to do and so in the midst of all these other things that are making the game brutal and tough they're also responding with anti with a sort of an anti-indigenous sentiment of we don't like that this school of indigenous kids with their tricky coach are beating us or at least tying us competing with us yeah we don't even we don't like that and some some of those carlisle school uh teams were genuinely amazing and that's where jim that's where uh, uh, really incredible and and so you know part of the brutality crisis was was also related to that like 
we don't like these people because of how they look. So we're going to play a style of game that disadvantages their team. And, and we don't care if people get hurt, at least up until they started caring about that. We're, we're just going to we're going to do this to beat them. And so, you know, th- right. yeah, in the midst of everything that we're also saying, that's also a subplot that's happening. And 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 it's a and, great point, you know. I really want to touch on that. Yeah, the, uh, to finish that out, though, and tie it back into the surrogacy thing before you take that up is... Sure. The phrase that got used a lot towards these Carlisle students was, kill the Indian, kill the savage, save the oh, man. absolutely. And, yeah. you know, that's a horrible phrase. Terrible, terrible lineage there. But, again, the emphasis on manhood. Now, I know that they would probably apply that non-genderedly, but within the boys that were playing this sport, that was the idea. We're going to kill this their heritage to save the human being to save the man inside that relationship so it's instilling a very different culture than what Correct. they were born into yep. and very much all of the Indian boarding schools were separate out kids from parents yep. and indoctrinate them in the dominant white culture of the time and football is culture oh yeah a thing that came (laughs) from Rutgers and Princeton and that Harvard and Yale got really good at Mm -hmm. is fundamentally that yes it is absolutely having them play football is among the ways that that you could do this beyond stripping names forcing them to speak English uh, changing food that people would eat all of this is a thing that builds on destroying um, the original indigenous culture. It's absolutely right. And I, and I really want to touch on the point you were making, Jeff, earlier about the rules not being set in any one school. You know, we, we talk about, you know, Alonzo Stagg and, and, and developing the snap. <laughs> like prior to the snap, they were just rolling the, an oblong object along the ground to start the place. And so... One of the things I want to point out, and maybe we can get into this in a later episode, but the very first HBCU football game between um, uh, St. Augustine, uh, excuse me, Livingstone College and John C. Smith University, uh, formerly Biddle College, that was a game played where nobody knew what the rules were. And the game ended in controversy because no one knew what the rules were. So they both have records uh, countering records where one says the game ended 5-0. In favor of Livingstone College, one says the game ended zero zero and has a tie, and they argue about it to this from eighteen ninety three to today. <laughs> Perfect. Because they, because again and, and again, I'll go, I'll go deep into this. I, this is one of my favorite stories about HBCU football. Is one team did not realize that, or didn't understand that there could be a thing called a fumble. That didn't exist. Oh my god! The fumble had not been invented yet. The field was was not shaped like a rectangle. The field was shaped like it was oblong in shape. So it's like a cricket. Uh, yes. Pitch. Yes. Yeah. It was not shaped like a uh, 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 a parallelogram. It was it was shaped with an odd number of sides and an odd number of of, of line drawings. It was not marked for yard lines. The end zone was, there were no end zones. There was just a field end. <laughs> and one team had rules that said, if you cross that with the ball, it's a touchdown. And one team had rules that said, if you cross that with the ball, it's out of bounds. <laughs> and it snowed that day. So we oh couldn't see the field. So, so, and I'll go into this. I, this is one of my favorite stories. And so... These I'm so happy two- there are records of that because knowing a lot yes. of, of early black history in sports, a lot of like 
oh, Negro yeah. League baseball records are just gone. No so you, so you have no gone. idea what like guys' batting averages are. It's all you might have a newspaper that said this guy was really, really good. It's all legends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I think Roger, no, maybe it's not Roger Clemente, but there's a there's a Negro League pitcher, and they were like, he pitched for 70 years, and it is deep into his 70s is pitching, and they asked him, what are your pitches called? Bat breaker, bat avoider, the dropper, <laughs> and a spinner. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> He had 3,000 hits and 2,000 or 3,000 hits and 3,000 strikeouts. And they were just like, did anybody keep count? It was like, we couldn't. He struck out so many batters. Oh, my gosh. And this is why Stickball was one of the best stat keeping organizations that's ever existed. Thanks, Major League Baseball. You're the best. I want to kind of go on because if you go to a Major League Baseball game, you got to have a hot dog. And so I want to talk about sports foods from around the U.S. and the world and different sports. And so, Jeff, I, I, you, you put this in the you put this in here and I'm excited to talk about it because I love Italian sausage. I grew up in Jersey. I love Italian sausage. I love kielbasa. I love andouille. If, if you can put various meat parts that have been ground up into some sort of intestinal lining and then heat that up, I'm all about it. So tell me about this. What have you got and what, what are you serving up for the dessert? Yeah, so part of this is inspired by just being bored sometimes and looking at Footy Scrand, which, if you're unaware of, is a uh, social media account that does... People will send this account what they have eaten at. It's mostly soccer games, but it's a lot of other sports as well. The food that they will have. Um, and it started as a very English thing. It is now people are sending from all over. And so looking through a lot of these things and noting commonalities and differences... Um, so one thing that I think was, I literally went to a baseball game last night, um, and I made sure to have a hot dog because that's a thing you do at a baseball game. Um, and you have take me out to the ball games in the seventh inning stretch and mentions food. It mentions peanuts and cracker jacks. It's so deep into so many sports of our traditions of eating along with them. Um, and so one thing that's interesting is I've said the commonalities and differences. So in so many of sports in places you will have some variant of you have a meat product and it's wrapped in some sort of starch or bread so the hot dog is a great example um the various different sausages around the world and around the u.s are a great example um and what's very interesting is a lot of times you will have the local culture reflected into what specifically though that sausage or that meat is so obviously the hot dogs pretty universal on the u.s but you have brats that are typically pretty common in areas of the midwest that had a lot of german uh, immigration so in places like milwaukee and chicago and even indiana and parts of ohio as well um in Chicago, you also have Polish sausage um, because there was a lot of Polish immigration in Chicago. And, and all the toppings on those Chicago and Oh, yeah, and all the toppings that are even a standard hot dog. It might be an all-be frank in both uh, Chicago and New York, but you're going to put different things on them. Um, and then, obviously, Blue mentioned earlier, getting Italian sausage with onions and peppers. It's Those are all just so hard to beat, and they're all in theory, the same thing, but they are all really reflecting what the local culture is, what the historic um, immigration pathways within the U.S. are, 
um, which also is a little bit of callback to when we were talking about Notre Dame earlier, uh, kind of matching that up with Paul Sausage, where Notre Dame being so close to Chicago that has had a ton of immigration from Poland and Ireland, parts of Germany that were Catholic, has is one reason why in in Chicago, as well as in Cincinnati, that had a ton of Bavarian immigration. Notre Dame's one of the most popular college football teams. Um, but even going beyond a sausage, um, you have a lot of places that'll have some sort of kebab that will be grilled and then uh, either stuffed into flatbread or just eat the meat off a stick. Um, and those will very often show up um, at sporting events in you know, places where that's really common, places like Japan and Turkey and throughout the Middle East and parts of the Balkans. Um, in the UK, you have a very common thing that is the meat pie, uh, which I personally am a big fan of. Um, that is, yet again, it's meat. Typically, it's some sort of beef, but it'll sometimes be chicken. Um, that is stew, wrapped up in pastry, and you eat it, and absolutely delicious. Um, but what a lot of these have in common is they are all things that you can eat with your hands without your hands getting dirty because your hand is holding the bread. And they're, some, they're pretty portable. You don't necessarily need a fork for them. Um, you can just kind of eat whatever. And even if you're doing, you know, a meat on sticks with some suzuki or, um, you know, a chicken skewer or something like that, it is... You just hold on the stick and then you eat um, whatever. So it allows you to not have to worry about getting your hands dirty so you can still clap. Um, you can also walk around with it. You've got another hand open for a beverage of some kind. The lack um, of tables in the stands. The lack of tables and, and not have to worry about utensils. So it, the other thing, too, is it's typically a good size for a snack during like a two to three hour event, but it's honestly a whole meal. Uh, it'll just kind of tie you through um, to when you can go something. And, oh, yeah, they're salty so that if you're selling drinks, which are typically really, really high-margin uh, product at most stadiums and restaurants, uh, you can you can sell, sell somebody a couple beers or a couple of Cokes or whatnot and make quite a bit of money if you were operating a concession stand. Um, and so kind of it's all same but it's all a little bit different and you can kind of see the reflections of where the places are um what is interesting that i also was talking to some people because when i think about all these foods a lot of them are some sort of meat based and one there are very different ideas of how foods are often gender coded and very often meat is gender coded towards masculinity which Give us a call back to what we were talking about earlier with with football in general, and that's an enforcement of certain kinds of cultural norms by saying, "Well, sports are for men. Men eat man foods. None of this women food stuff at our man sports." Right. Don't put anything green on my plate. Type <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Um, which is very problematic, and also is a not necessarily comfortable for a lot of fans um, and is slowly changing. The other thing is very often you hold people that have dietary restrictions for various reasons often have problems finding food at stadiums. So I talked to a couple of folks um, 
past couple days. One is vegetarian. One uh, does not eat pork or drink. Um, and kind of what their thoughts are, because those are meats and a lot of things that are typical stadium food. Um, pork is as well. And alcohol is very, very common at sporting events. And one thing is it very much is a thing of that's not stopping the folks I talked to from going to games, but it does mean that they need to plan ahead. It needs to be, okay, I am going to go to this game. I know I probably can't get uh, something, so I'll make sure that I have a snack or a full meal before I go to the game. Um, and very much there are... It's a pleasant surprise when, when seeing things, but very much it has changed recently um, within the past years where newer stadiums that both these people have found that have gone to have done a better job of their food offerings for um, people with dietary foods, particularly vegetarians. Um, and so one of the folks lives in New York. Um, they're talking about the Barclay Center that now actually runs uh, rotating groups of local vendors um, as a lot of their concessions, which has meant that you've had one, a higher quality of product, but also you're more likely to get uh, a vendor that's going to be really cognizant of dietary restrictions than you would have in the past where it's just a blanket. We're just selling hot dogs and popcorn and whatnot. Uh, catering company. Um, the other person I talked to well, is my significant other. Uh, but we've gone to games in uh, at Family Stadium, which is Racing Louisville and Louisville City's new um stadium that they have done a really good job of making sure that all of their concession stands have um, vegetarian options where that's not necessarily the case in um, for example baseball game we went last night at Victory Field this is a beautiful facility it's in Indianapolis but is built in the 90s that they are very much a you've got your options of your nachos your hot, your hot dogs your popcorn and they aren't necessarily doing you know a vegetarian option for, for a hot dog um, and the one thing that the, the person that doesn't drink had mentioned is they they had you know used to drink more heavily than they do now and so they had mentioned that it didn't change that they went to sports but it changed which sports they went to um, where they previously gone to a lot more football games and part of it was the group of people that they were with all drank heavily and they wanted to get away from that so stop going to games with that group and have now gotten more basketball games with a different group of people. The other thing that we're kind of talking about is the ritual of football is often more built around drinking because you will have a long tailgate build up and then you'll have the game. that's a longer game that you can drink more through and then you might go out later. And with a specific th- break in the middle. With a, Yeah. And that fundamentally is a different experience than it's a weeknight. I'll go after work to the basketball game. You know, you could probably at most have a couple beers, but if you don't drink, you know, you're not, you're not getting the people around you aren't getting so drunk that you feel left out when you're sober. So I want to jump in for a second, Jeff, and I want to ask a question about this because all of this is fascinating. I love it. One of the things I wanted to kind of push on with the, eat with their hands, on the move, 
in a in a situation where you're at a football game, you know, maybe a smaller seat or the stands are tight or what have you. How much of this and and Josiah may I would like to have him jump in as well, but like how much of this is based on kids as well? Because if you think of the baseball games, Major League Baseball during the Great Depression, a kid walking in, getting a ticket and then paying a nickel for a hot dog is a that's a pretty common thing you would see from depictions of these games or you know if you go to a football game and you you bring a small child and you want to have you know you want to give them a food that they can eat you give them a hot dog because they can hold a hot dog in their hands and they can make a mess of it without really impacting anybody else and so how much of this is yes these are tradition or local flavor or whatever but also that a lot of these sports are geared toward entertainment for children because they're easy to follow and then having easier food to eat um, would be in your estimation. It's to a significant degree, and especially in the U.S., where we typically build the concept of sports around family friendless and kids like very very explicitly baseball is marketed as a family entertainment option um to some degree football is as well and college football i know a lot of people do bring kids because it's a bring your whole family connect with with lots of people um which can get very interesting when you have that combined with the student section that is normally rowdy at best, mildly intoxicated uh, 18 to 25-year-olds um, that are a little bit uh, foul-mouthed compared to, I'm sure, how a lot of adults would prefer. But you can still, you know, bring your kids out and it's a, a whole-day activity to football and you just might have them wear uh, some hearing protection to not hear all those words. Um, but it's very... Given the U.S. sporting experience is marketed like that, it is definitely a thing of, yeah, we do kid-friendly foods because parents will buy their kids concessions or kids will buy themselves concessions, and that's that's part of that experience. Very much contrasted with how a lot of European soccer has historically been, where it has not been family-oriented or marketed, and it's mostly been um, younger men, and there have there's a very different vibe of environment and there have been some efforts to change that and really try and do things to bring, bring in more kids and create a more family friendly experience. But you still have some of the legacies of some of that in some historic chance, um, as well as you know, a history in a lot of parts of Europe in South America, um, in Latin America of, of fan violence, um, in a way that doesn't exist in American sports. And there are a lot of reasons for that. The geographic closeness. High Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah. Um, geographic closeness makes a difference to this, where you can have big groups of away fans. And if they're rowdy away fans with nothing to lose, where during certain periods of, of British history, there's a feeling of, well, I have nothing to lose. And so therefore, why, why not punch a dude for wearing the wrong colors? Um, and you have different parts of, of Europe where that feeling of kind of desperation is still there and that, that parts of Latin America that's there as well. Um, but also if it is a thing that historically we say, well, it's for, um, young men, they have permission to act in a way that will be different than if they see a kid and you'll just have guys being dudes, right? Yeah. Just guys being dudes, which, 
you know, can be fun, can, you know, might just be okay. It's some foul mouth words and what's the harm in that? I mean, a lot of American soccer support culture has um, a lot of that. There's people love chanting and a lot of times it'll, it'll be not necessarily mean spirited, but could be, there could be a bit of a uh, cussing involved. Um, but you have places that are maybe less bad at self-policing on hateful language where you might have specific chants that are racist or homophobic, which in a lot of countries is a serious problem. Italy has a lot of serious problems with um, particularly racist chants and gestures within fans. Um, there are some clubs in England are historically known for that. Um the fans and the, in fact, Mexican Soccer Federation has been sanctioned formally for fan chants um, that are homophobic of one specific chant that has popped up again and again that literally have been World Cup qualifying games that um, Mexico is not allowed to have was not allowed to have fans in for. And there were fears that if after the couple game, you know, fans suspended games that if they don't do something to deal with that, they would literally be banned from the World Cup. Yeah, that's crazy stuff. I mean, I remember during the World Cup, there was the one where they were insulting the African player. Uh, Italy was insulting an African player on the French team, and that was, like, really a big deal for what was going on. Um, Josiah, I want to ask you about this, because uh, I imagine if I go to an Oklahoma State game to watch a football game, if I order a can of beans and a cup of coffee, they're going to look at me like I've lost my mind, even though that is what they would feed Pistol Pete. But like what, you know, and you, you talk a lot about this building community and such. How does food play into these? I mean, we, we make the sporting event a communal affair. It's sometimes a quasi-religious affair. And we can look at certain religious affairs that are tied to food and all that. How, how does some of your, your expertise on these uh, community building events or or, or community net natural events, how do they tie into food and, and how does the food influence them and how do they influence the food? Yeah, um, I know that like, it goes back to that idea of place that we talked about before where <clears throat> even something as simple like at Oklahoma State of getting a local restaurant, not, not a chain that is locally produced that has a local branch, but actual local restaurant that has no secondary version except in the stadium to be there is a, one of the ways that the corporate side does this. They, they make sure that there's a, a, a place presence. I know that in, in like a lot of, you know, Mississippi tailgating situations, they are going to, they're going to go all out in ways that are really particular. There's going to be stuff like, you know, um, oh, what's, what is it? Uh, Tippa County caviar, I think is what it's called. Um, but you know, it's just a black IP salad. Um, but you know, stuff like that, where they're going to do things that are just regionally specific. And there's a certain amount of pride in that, you know, I'm sure that there are Louisianans that eat gator tail a lot, but I'm guessing that like they might eat gator tail and crawfish at 
at an actual game, maybe at a slightly higher percentage than other meals because it's an event. And and so I think some of it, what you celebrate when you go to these things is the place, where you are from, but also what this team represents in terms of location. So yeah, if this is a state university of the of the state, or even if it's not, you know, if you want to ground it in that in that space, uh, food is easily one of the ways to do that. And you know, in Stillwater, that's probably going to look a lot like barbecue in particular. Um, Although I, I I wouldn't say Oklahoma's the strongest barbecue state. We're really good at steak, but barbecue's fine. We're not like the best. Um, nah, maybe the barbecue snobbing me, but uh, but yeah, that's that's the uh, that is um, that that's part of how it can look. Yeah, part of what can undergird that practice, what can make it effective. I want to ask a question here that just kind of kind of goes to close out the, the 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 dessert portion. But you have a note in here about the difference between Brooklyn and then the suburbs on food. So I, I want to ask about this because this is for me, and I grew up in a tri-state. So you you'll for, hopefully you'll give me some some permission to kind of take this leeway and kind of run with it. To the best of your knowledge, how does that make a difference between say the food you get if you go see the New York baseball Yankees? And then the New York baseball Mets, because the Mets, they're in Queens, typically in a suburban, suburb, sub, suburbish area. And then, you know, you have your uh, the Bronx Bombers out there in Yankee Stadium, New Yankee Stadium. And, you know, what are we looking at food wise here? Are we looking at a great delta in the types of foods you get at these two stadiums? So in the stadiums, maybe less so. I think what I was talking with... Um person I was interviewing, it was less, if you're going to, let's say, have a special event food at the stadium, um, where it might be, hey, we're doing special foods for a um, heritage night, or just as a promotion, here's this wild thing. If you are from a suburban area that maybe doesn't have the density of restaurants or the variety of restaurants the same way, and you might have to go further to try a lot of different things, doing those kinds of promotions or having a lot of different kinds of foods reflect in the stadium is an opportunity for you to try a lot of different things that maybe it's harder to access where you are um, or harder to access nearly as close as you are if you are in somewhere that's really high density um, where, yeah, you could get food from all over the world in New Jersey. Great food state, but it requires a little bit more driving than if you are in parts of New York City where... All of that variety, instead of being reflected in one town that you all have to drive between different places, it's reflected in like a couple blocks and it's a short walk. Um, so what he's saying is, yeah, it isn't going to bring me in in the same way if you try and emphasize food because there is so much so close. No, that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't thought of it in that way because, again, being from Jersey, we, we drove everywhere. So if I wanted something specific, I went to the play, I got, you know, asked a friend, asked my dad, asked my mother, like, Ma, I want to go to this place, can you take me? I, I hadn't even thought of it, of the idea of a walkable city. I, I did see something, uh, a lot about that, obviously, through during the pandemic, where they said no cars. And so they had people walking through the streets to get to places, and maybe, you know, we can kind of influence civic, civic uh, civil engineering to make our cities more walkable. 
Because again, that's what a campus is, right? If if you take the idea that a campus could be a small city in some cases, or a suburban area, or I know uh, Stillwater may be a little more rural than maybe say my campus at Norfolk State, but it's at the end of the day, it's still a walkable environment where you can get to everything in a day. Um, you may not be able to eat everything in a day, you can get to everything in a day. And so that kind of takes me to the end here, um, to our final, to the, the final portion of this. I, I try to ask a question that goes out and then people come back to us with it. Um, and, and my question is about culture is what's a thing from your university or, or sports team that represents the culture? So you talk about it as like, this is the thing we all point to. And it's like, this is a part of our culture. And so I'll start, you know, at Norfolk State, for us, it's, it's, it's uh, the beacon. Behold, you know, the legion. Uh, listening to them play, there's a song we that the Legion plays that is called "Behold," and that's everyone knows that song. If you actually go back and watch their performance for the Rose Bowl, they play that, and they're, they're when they go onto the field, they're on the track and they're playing the song that's on. They're playing is "Behold." And if you look in the crowd, you see Norfolk State alumni stand, and they immediately start. Uh, uh, we have this salute that we do that's during the song. And and all of us, all of the Norfolk stage, like, that's them. They're, that's a Spartan. We know them when we see it. And so I'm asking the, the listeners and my co-hosts, what's the thing that you know that's a part of the culture? Like, that's that's where I'm from. That's that's Purdue. That's Oklahoma State. That's Mississippi State. Uh, uh, Jeff, why don't you go ahead and lead us off? What's the thing that you know instantly? That, that's Boilermakers. We know that's them when we see I feel like the Block P is a really fantastic example where it's now the athletics logo, but it started as a band formation. I did not know that. I thought that was, I I learned recently that the academic side and the athletic side have wildly different representation. I've always, for example, Cal is a perfect example. I always assumed the script C-A-L was just a university-wide beloved and it turns out that that's just the athletic side's representation of Berkeley and the actual university academic side has a completely different set of standards and, and, and uh, 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 branding. And I, I, that, that shocked me. That, that I can't lie. That shocked me a great deal. Josiah, what between the two schools that, that you love, the two ag mm-hmm. schools, Mississippi State and Oklahoma State, what are what are the two things that are uh, culturally specific that you know? That's it. That's that's Stillwater. That's Starkville. What are those I two mean, things? Starkville, it's got to be cowbells like that. Other schools have them, of course, but it is such a such a focal point for us. Um, and for Oklahoma State, it's kind of a similar thing, although it doesn't make any sound. It's the it's the pistols gesture where you make a gun with your hands. And again, other schools do that. That's a Texas Tech thing. They they do that. Other schools have versions of that, but it is still those are still very iconic things around the schools. That's it. it you know, one's loud, one's silent, but you know, they both they both really embody a lot of you know that it's a very quick representation for that. That you can with the especially with the pistol, you can do that literally anywhere. As long as you, you know, can move your hands, you can make the pistol gesture. With the cowbell, you can't really, but you know, it's still a. But if it if you can use it, you hear it, you know exactly what that is. Excellent. Those are two good ones. Uh, we do now have a website. Uh, and Jeff, can you give me the URL for that? We can get people yeah. directed to where they need to point their uh, their browser. It is feedyourmascot.squarespace.com. Um, and we will put and it in the what? show notes. 
as well. What can they find there? What can so they, they find? They can find one, the link to the podcast RSS. Uh, if you want to share that with uh, others or if you need to subscribe yourself, they can find a form for listener questions and comments. So if you have something you want to send to us, a topic, a suggestion, um, or question, answer you can to our questions, answer to what we've had. Been answers asking every to, to the questions mm-hmm. or uh, comments, things we can do better. Or, yeah, if you've got topics or, or things you, you think that would be up in our wheelhouse, feel free to send those on. We also have a uh, link to our Instagram that we should do more with. Um, <laughs> and we'll probably There's talk offline. Color coming soon. Yes, it's very gray right now. It will it will get a little bit brighter. Um, but yeah, you can find all that there. And we're also working on getting the pod integrated into some podcatchers so that you don't have to already know the RSS feed. You can search mm-hmm. for it and find it in all your good podcast places. Yes, indeed. All right. And with that, we're going to go ahead and sign out. Josiah, sign us out for uh, from your end of the world. Uh, anything you want to leave the listeners with? I mean, as always, you know, go dogs and go pokes. Sounds good. Jeff from Breezy, Indiana, anything you want to you wanna leave us with? Uh, I will be at a very breezy soccer game uh, later for <laughs> Indy 11's opening night. So uh, come on, you boys in blue. Sounds good. And, and I just want everyone to always remember to feed your mascot.